Taryn McMahon, professor of art at Kent State University, joined us in room 12 via WebEx, of course, to discuss her exhibition Along Muddy Banks. The exhibition occurred from October to December of 2022. It was a nice conversation about her career as an artist and as a teacher and the role that art can play in our ongoing dialogue over sustainability and our environmental impact. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Chris, uh, so much for inviting me to do the show and inviting me to give this talk. It's really nice uh, to be here virtually <laughs> with you all. Um, at St. Ambrose. Uh, so like Chris said, I, I'm um, an associate professor at Kent State in Ohio, and my MFA is from the University of Iowa, where I graduated with Chris. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, and uh, my BFA is from Penn State University in Pennsylvania. And I, before I get started, I just want to say, if you have questions, Chris, should people just raise their hands and and yeah, or I'm okay from here. Shout it out because I'm fine with answering questions throughout the talk if something is urgent. And then also we can do questions at the end too. Yes, either way. Oh, okay. So, um, my oh, let, me just say, let me just say uh, real quick before we get started uh, Krista was having some sound problems upstairs. So, if she wants to add a question in the chat, I can, uh, I can read off questions from the chat if she wants to do that. So, that sounds good because I, I don't think I can see the chat at this moment. So okay. with the screen share. So, all right. Well, uh, my work as an artist uh, observes and documents my interactions with the natural world. And something I think a lot about is my perspective as a person who grew up in, in sort of a working class environment in New Jersey. Uh, the closest park to my house where I, when I was growing up was um, an old army test site and it was called the deal test site and I didn't think it was weird that, that that was the closest park that we would go over there and you know walk around and there would be these like fallen down radio towers and you know remnants of what that landscape used to be used as um and so I, I never felt particularly like close to the natural world in my everyday environment and and I think that my work is this attempt to understand the natural world and, but also to be honest and critical and kind of unromantic about my interactions with it and, and what those are really like. So to get started, I want to kind of do a fun little uh, exercise. So would everybody just close your eyes for a minute and imagine nature? <laughs> just, just close your eyes and Bring a picture to your mind, okay? And hold that picture in your mind for a couple of moments. All right, go ahead and open your eyes. I don't know if we can, uh, if I can see people raise their hands, but how many of you imagined a landscape? A few, I'm trying to see. A few people imagined a landscape? Yeah, about half. Okay. Who, how many of you imagine an animal, like something undomesticated, like a deer, something like that? Anybody? None, no. None? <laughs> um, did anybody picture like an insect or something like that? Mm, uh -uh, nope. No, none. Did anybody picture themselves? 
Hmm. No. Yeah, nobody ever pictures themselves. And I'm really curious about that. I'm really interested in that. And I, I'm the same way. When I think of nature, I think of a landscape that uh, there's no people in it. And so what is that about? Why are we outside of nature? Why are we not a part of nature in our minds? And what are the ramifications of that kind of a worldview are some of the questions that I think about. Oh, let's see. So I think that um, the way that we, you know, interact with the natural world um, is often in this dominating and destructive way. Uh, and part of it is that because we don't necessarily see ourselves as part of the natural world. So um, nature becomes a backdrop for ourselves and not something within which we exist or something that has its own agency or something that we collaborate with. So that very idea of nature that we have, that, that image that you pictured, whatever that was, the idea that that's what nature is, that's a man-made idea, right? Um, and of course that has political and social and ecological implications. Uh, so this is a painting by Thomas Cole that's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And as an artist, I'm very interested in the ways in which uh, images and art history have shaped my fantasies about what nature is and what it isn't. Uh, from the Hudson River School to early botanical engravings, I'm a printmaker, so I'm interested in, you know, how printmaking has intersected with this idea. Um, but art has really molded that idea of what nature is and what isn't. Art is a big uh, has a big responsibility in that image that you pictured in your mind and creating what that image is. So, uh, you know, some of the things I'm thinking about in the intersections are fine art photography, um, landscape painting, landscape photography, and like I said, printmaking. So in my own work, um, one thing I'm, I study a lot is early botanical woodcuts and engravings. So in her book, The Insect and the Image, uh, which is this book on the screen right now, Janice Neary coined the term uh, specimen logic, she calls it, to refer to the framing devices that artists often used in these early woodcuts and early engravings. And that, that framing device, that specimen logic, is when an insect or a plant would be isolated on a page freed from the rest of their environment and rendered in like really stiff, exquisite detail. And that tendency to separate or classify and categorize the natural world, um, it really prevents a holistic or an ecological viewpoint, right? That would include interactions, it would include systems, it would include, it would say, we can't separate out this thing from the rest of the environment that sustains it and that it interacts with on a daily basis. And I think we're just recently waking up to this idea that we exist within this vast entangled mesh and that the system itself is something that is really important and nothing really exists in isolation. So in my work, one thing I think about a lot as an artist is how can I show the the mesh, how can I show um, an environment? Uh, how can I show the idea of surroundings, of entanglement, 
of spaces between things and kind of reject this idea of a subject on a page. So um, a lot of my recent installations or, or um, works on paper, you know, people have said, you know, one comment I've gotten is that the compositions are non-hierarchical. There's not a clear, um, uh, you know, subject, so to speak, centered on the page. So they are environments. So another thing I think about a lot is how before photography, printmaking um, was really the medium that was used by scientists and uh, a lot of other um, citizens for the classification of species or for um, the ability to see something uh, where you can't go there yourself, right? So when there wasn't photography, when there wasn't digital images, printmaking resulted in multiples, they could be distributed and people could uh, experience, um, people in Europe, for example, could experience the flora and the fauna of the new world, so to speak. Um, so, this idea of how we experience landscapes or environments, um, how we uh, can experience any place without ever leaving our homes, that's another thing that comes up again and again in my work. Um, and I think, again, has to do with these interactions between the human and the non-human and how we experience landscape vicariously through images. And I'm also really interested in early photography. So this is a process, uh, these are prints by Anna Atkins, um, who was an early photographer. Um, cyanotype is a process, it's a really simple early photography process where you coat uh, paper in this photosensitive emulsion and then place an object on the paper in the sun and it will burn a silhouette of that object into the paper and then you rinse it and you're left with this gorgeous cyan blue backdrop with uh, the object, the silhouette of the object rendered in white on the page. So Anna Atkins was using this process to document the ecology of her time. She was working in the, in the 17, 1800s and, make, and she, she was, um, her work was of interest to scientists as well as artists because of what she was doing. And in a way, I feel like I'm trying to do a similar thing I'm trying to document what I see as kind of the ecology of, of my time. Uh, so in his book, Ecology Without Nature, Timothy Morton says, it is an art that the fantasies we have about nature take shape and dissolve. Uh, Morton argues that in order to have a properly ecological worldview, we need to really get rid of this idea of nature altogether that nature, that thing that you pictured, you know, at the beginning of this talk in your mind um, is a romantic idea. It's not reality. And it neglects to acknowledge that we ourselves are nature and so are the things that we create. Uh, so a great example of this that I, I read about recently in the New York Times and I thought, oh, this is a great example of this idea. I have to include it in my talk is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. <laughs> so uh, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is um, a huge pile of garbage of uh, mostly plastics and netting and toothbrushes and various things that exists in the Pacific Ocean about halfway between California and Hawaii. 
and there's there's something like seventy thousand tons of of garbage in this in this patch. And the New York Times reported that scientists studying it recently found that small sea creatures exist in equal number with the pieces of plastic in the patch. <laughs> so it has become um, a floating island of I, I can't even pronounce all the, these different species: dragon nudie branches, Portuguese man o' wars. Other small surface dwelling animals collectively known as uh, Newston. I don't know if I said that right, but um, and that the scientists studying it said that any large scale removal of plastic from the patch could pose a threat to these inhabitants, some of which are becoming rare and that um, it, this is now providing an ecosystem for them. Uh, so for better or worse, uh, we as humans are interacting with the natural world, obviously. We're a part of an ecosystem and it uh, is far more complex than uh, this is where nature starts and we end or vice versa. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about this idea in my own work that um, sometimes what is nature and what isn't nature, we think that's a very clear question, but it's not. So this brings me to my current project that's in the show uh, called a series of entanglements. So I, for this project, I was really interested in exploring water and the natural spaces of my everyday life, specifically the Cuyahoga River. Um, and the Cuyahoga River has played a significant role in the history of ecology in the United States. Um, its claim to fame is that it caught fire in 1969. The river itself caught fire uh, because it was so polluted. Um, and that set off a movement that eventually led to the founding of the EPA and the passage of the Clean Water Act. So um, that event really, that, that image of a river being on fire really uh, grabbed the attention of the American people and led to some real change. Um, and the Cuyahoga River is in much better health ecologically today than in the 60s or 70s, um, but it remains a significant point of interaction between humans and our environment. And so I, and I walk along it every day, you know, I, I walk along there. Um, the campus, it, it goes right by campus. Um, and I began to collect objects from the shores, um, from the, from the edges, uh, consumer plastics, abandoned fishing supplies. In addition to naturally occurring objects such as algae and stones and using them to make uh, cyanotypes and monotypes. So this is a, a photo that I took along the edge of the Cuyahoga River. Um, and it gives a good idea of the kind of spaces that I'm talking about. You know, there's there's stones, there's leaves, there's water, there's these natural things. There's also the the railroad ties. Um, and I and also just formally, I'm really interested in the, these shallow spaces right along the edges where the water allows for this layering of objects. And you see that in the prints, right? This shallow water allows for layering of objects in space. And I try to kind of capture that feeling of, of that layering in the prints too. Um, so this is my trusty assistant, my dog Bucky, um, who's always up for getting in the water and collecting some stuff. But 
<laughs> you, know, you can see the plastic water bottles floating around, um, sticks, leaves, rocks. All right, now here we are to the work. So to make these monotypes, I started by translating the silhouettes of the objects that I had collected into stencils, very simple stencils, just the silhouettes and layering them in different highly transparent colors. So because they're monotypes, each print is unique. I'm not making additions and I'm making a conscious decision to try to weave together the man-made, so to speak, and the natural um, without kind of jurying or, you know, editing out like, you know, things like styrofoam or, you know, the uglier things that I found. I want to include that kind of stuff. Um, so the results are what I think of as visual environments that reiterate the entanglement that I think of as being the current state of ecology in which the human and non-human really can't be separated anymore. Um, and yeah, trying to create a sense of uh, shallow space. Um, I'm also playing around with uh, printmakery things that, you know, if you know a little bit about printmaking, I'm playing around with blend rolls. I'm having fun with that. Um, I'm, I'm playing around with the stencils. Um, I'm doing some things like shinkole, which is basically just like a fancy way of saying collage. Um, and I also was very interested in the, the rocks that I saw and the erosion netting that I saw. I'm going to talk more about erosion later, but um, that was something that I started to become very interested in. So uh, all that good 2D comp stuff I'm thinking about at the same time that I have these like kind of lofty ideas about what I'm doing as an artist, I'm also just very simply thinking about layering, space, movement, color, shape, and you know how I can make an interesting image. Um, so some of the prints have more realistic colors and others I'm, I'm pushing the color a bit to see what happens with some artificiality introduced and trying to set up interesting color relationships. So when you say realistic color, you mean like the color of the things that they were? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, you know, in this one, you know, you can kind of see the shapes that are the rocks in the background, and that's not too far from, it's not exactly the color of the rocks, but it's not too far. And, but then um, I wanted to bring in something different with the blue, um, or in the last one, having a hot pink. Um, I'm, I'm trying to kind of make formal decisions the way I think about my ideas a lot of times is that I am, I have my ideas when I get started, but then when I get into the print shop and I'm printing, I kind of just make formal decisions. So the idea, the idea part of it is really at the beginning, right, where I'm deciding what this project is going to be about. I'm finding the objects, I'm curating the objects. I'm deciding kind of, I'm setting up a system for how I'm going to make the work. But then when I actually get to the press and I'm making the work, I let myself just kind of get really involved with the printmaking and the and formal aspects of the work. Uh, so this is monotyping graphite. So sometimes, you know, I'm not a very traditional printmaker. I, I draw on the prints at times. 
Um, like I said, I use Chincolé or collage. Um, sometimes I use mixed media. And these are all, you know, they're all run through the press uh, multiple times trying to build up um, texture and different colors. And a lot of times it's kind of surprising the relationships that happen um, after getting run through the press. And I love that about printmaking. How are you making the stencils? I'm just uh, laying objects down on mylar and tracing it with a pencil mm. and then cutting it out with an exacto knife. So mm. it's really basic. Although some of them have this netting in it, mm. um, this erosion netting. And I cut one erosion net about 18 by 30 by hand and I decided no more. <laughs> and I actually did have it a couple more laser cut. So you'll see those later on, um, but mostly by hand. Okay. Uh, so at the same time that I work on the monotypes, I'm also uh, always working on these larger banner pieces that I have. So this installation actually started as a smaller, you know, 22 by 30 cyanotype, that process I was talking to you about earlier that Anna Atkins used, you know, where you just place objects on a photo um, sensitive paper. And I made was making cyanotypes with these objects that I had collected along the Cuyahoga River. And I took this cyanotype and I scanned it in at a really high resolution and uh, used a large format inkjet printer to print uh, this cyanotype out at this huge scale on these um, rolls of Japanese style paper, which is a traditional printmaking paper. And I really love that kind of blend of a new technology with um, older technology, um, it, but also just that translucency of the paper um, and that, that feeling that kind of brings it back to printmaking. And I was really interested in what would happen with the scale, like what would happen when the silhouettes of this chunk of styrofoam um, was almost an architectural scale, like it becomes bigger than the viewer. So this is a, a close up um, and I showed this in at UW University of Wisconsin Stout with the monotypes in a mm -hmm. show last year. Um, and so you can see in the cyanotype there's um, at the top, there's a chunk of styrofoam. There's scraps of uh, plastic branches and leaves. My favorite object in here, you can't really tell what it, where it is, but it's a Capri Sun juice box. <laughs> there's like a little straw sticking out of it. <laughs> and it, again, it goes back to that idea of trying to capture what I feel like is the ecology of my time. All right, so back to the um, the idea of the erosion netting. So I, after I did all this, I started working on this series of monotypes that were inspired by the erosion netting that I saw along the Cuyahoga River, holding uh, rocks in place along the edges of the river. Um, Especially when the pandemic first started in 2020 and I was taking these walks along the river, I started to see the erosion netting as this attempt to slow a gradual destruction. It was like an act that was never finished, an act of protection um, that was always going to be in progress. Like it's, it's never 
we're never going to be done fighting erosion. It's always going to be there slowly kind of eroding. Um, so I felt like it was a metaphor for so many things, also a metaphor for trying to avoid ecological collapse, but also how I felt in the moment at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. And so I was taking these monotypes and I uh, laser cut the uh, form of the erosion netting into the monotype. So this is a detail of what that looks like and was kind of folding and crumpling them to look like the um, the erosion netting that I had seen. Um, and uh, yeah. I, I didn't frame these. I'm interested in how sculptural they are. And I'm also interested in how kind of delicate they are. Um, but they're also surprisingly strong too. Um, each one, even after it was laser cut, they were run through the press multiple times and they hold up shockingly well because um, really thin Japanese style paper, even though it's very thin, it has these very long fibers hmm. that make it quite strong for how thin it is. So I'm going to end with this. So um, ultimately, as an artist, it's really important to me to remain adaptable. Um, this might sound kind of flippant, but I really mean it, that in art, like ecology, it's not the strongest or the best that have the most longevity. It's the most adaptable. It's the ones that figure out how to live in the garbage patch. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm going to end with that. Thank you so much for uh, being at this talk and for listening to me. And I look forward to answering your questions that will earn you bonus points. <laughs> um, so do you sell any of your artwork or is it all up just for display? Could you hear that? Uh, I heard ha about half of it. <laughs> do you like sell any of your artwork or is it all just for display? Yes, I do sell my artwork. Um, uh, I've been, I work with several galleries and a couple of art advisors in Cleveland that um, I, it takes a while for me to sell a whole body of work, um, but this body of work that I have at St. Ambrose right now, I've sold a, a few pieces out of this series so far. Um, and then like my last series um, that I worked on for a few years before I started this one also had maybe about 15 pieces in it. And I only have two pieces left of that. So it, I mean, it takes some time, but, um, yeah, my work has gone on into, you know, private collectors buy it. Um, I've, I've had a few pieces go into hospitals lately. Um, uh, corporate collections. I've had a few pieces, uh, like PNC bank. Um, yeah. So, so I guess. I don't make the work with that in mind, like, oh, I'm going to sell this. Um, I make the work, you know, with about in ideas that I'm interested in. Um, but some miraculously, some of it does sell. <laughs> cool. I, I don't, to be clear, I don't make a living off of selling my work, but it's, but I do sell some. Supplements your salary as a teacher, as a professor. 
I, I, it's nice when I break even <laughs> on, on making the work and selling the work, right? Because it's a lot of time and a lot of expense and materials and framing and everything else. I probably do a little bit better than break even, but I, yes. Mm -hmm. Good question. Good question. What else? Question? Yeah. Loud. Um, for your larger pieces, do you print them all as one or do you just print them in sections? I print them in uh, 40 inch wide rolls. So I can print on the large format printer that we have uh, at Kent State. I can print 40 inches wide by almost like however long. I mean, the rolls come in. I mean, I'm limited by the length of the roll. So I'm printing those. Um, each, each you can see the three sections um and i I've, I've been i'm i like to think of it as i'm kind of honest about how things are made i think that's because i'm a printmaker instead of wanting it to feel like um oh there's no limitations i'm interested in limitations um i think that comes from printmaking because we're always limited by like the size of the press and the you know what so it's always working within these limitations so um i i Think of the banners as being very honest about that. Like I can print 40 inches wide by however long. So each each banner is 40 inches wide by maybe 12 feet tall. And I leave the like there's I I try to meet them up, but like I said, I, I I'm I don't mind the gaps. I like the gaps and I like that idea of like where they meet up um and you know how that happens. Um so to your question of like are they printed in sections yes this is printed in three sections so i scan it at a really high resolution i split it that that huge image i split into three strips and then each strip i print it takes over an hour to to print each really long um strip um and then i like i fold pockets at the top and the bottom to create like the hanging device of how it all hangs, you know, so that, you know, you don't really see how it hangs. It all just kind of looks like it just belongs there. Cool. We have a question in the chat. Um, Barbarian, one of our art majors would like to know if you have any advice for their path to becoming a college art professor. Um, that's a, that's a challenging question. Um, <laughs> Well, to become an art professor, you need to have an MFA. Um, but then I would also encourage you to think about, um, to look at where those jobs are posted and how many jobs there are each year. Um, so like look at collegeart.org right now and look at, if you, if you look, if you go there, collegeart.org and you look at jobs and you look at printmaking jobs, there's only going to be a couple. Um, if you look at painting jobs, there's going to be a little bit more or foundations jobs. There's going to be a little bit more, but there's still really only going to be a, a few. And when you think of each MFA program, you know, and there's dozens of MFA programs and they're each graduating, um, you know, a handful of people a year, every year, um, you really start to see that each one of those jobs. Uh, has hundreds of people apply to it and there's just not enough jobs for all of the people who are getting MFAs. So I hope that that doesn't sound discouraging because it's certainly possible. I know people who get, and this is full-time jobs, and I certainly know people who have gotten them and I have one and, and um, 
I don't, so I don't want to sound discouraging. It's certainly possible to go out there and, and get a full-time job as a college art professor teaching art. Um, but m the vast majority of people I, I know who are teaching art at the college level are adjuncts. And what that means is that they teach part-time um, and they have other ways that they supplement their income. So before you, you know, go to get your MFA and think that you're going to be a college art professor, I would really do some research on what it means to be an adjunct what that word means what and what that job is really like and if you're okay with that and if you're not okay with that that's okay too and think about um what else you might want to do um and then finally i'll say i i tell my students if you go on to get your mfa because you want to uh invest in yourself as an artist you'll never regret that i think um, but if you go on to get your MFA because you think you want to be a college art professor, um, that's a that's a riskier uh, decision, I think. And I, I hope that doesn't sound too. <laughs> yeah, I hope that doesn't sound like too much of a bummer. But um, that's the reality of the uh, job market right now. Yeah. So we 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 got our degrees in 2011. Both of us, is that right? Yes. 2011. So that was over a decade ago. It's already changed a lot, but you know, those are ups and downs that it's impossible to time a market, but it does seem like it gets harder and harder. But uh, how, how long were you out with your MFA before you got a full-time job? A couple of years. Um, but I will say, I know people who have been adjuncts for decades and part-time and they're, they're piecing it together um and they're great artists and they fully deserve a full-time job and they're they're doing the same exact work as their full-time colleagues mm -hmm. um they're just paid a fraction of the price so it's very problematic it's a the it's a it's a problem of the system um and yes i think it does get harder and harder like i think that um when we when chris and i entered the job market i think it was probably the hardest that the job market had ever been i mean because because the economy tanked in 2008 and they got rid of a lot of um, full-time tenure track jobs, universities did. Um, but then now things are even harder. Yes, they are. So uh, yeah, it's a tough um, market out there. But you could be a savvy uh, um, candidate as well. You can identify aspects <laughs> that are changing. You might represent an aspect of the field that's changing. So each person has to make that decision on their own. I, I agree, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I can't advise anybody without knowing them really well. Like, and I send students to get their MFA all the time. I just tell them, don't pay to get your MFA. Yeah. Um, make sure you go somewhere that's going to pay you. Yeah. Yeah. So make the best decision with an MFA program that you can for financial reasons. Okay. Do you have any other questions in here? Any other questions? No, no. Good. Or five points. Five points. I'm just handing out five points here. That's right. Okay, Riley. I was just handing it out. I got one. I got, we got one here. For one of the, uh, like the standard size pieces, how long from start to finish would that take about? Um, it's hard to gauge because I work, the way that I work is like, I take all these walks. I take all these photos. I collect all these objects for months. Like I started doing that in 2019 and then I started cutting out the silhouettes 
I worked on that for months and then I moved into the printing and I work on all the prints all at the same time. So I have them, I have like 20 pieces of paper in the drying rack and I'm like inking something up and I'm like, oh, this would be the perfect layer to finish this one. And I pull it out. And so each one, I don't like, I don't know how many hours each one takes, but as a whole, yeah, it takes me, you know, at least a year to work on like a series like this. So you're, so just to, to reiterate, you're, you're taking those pieces of mylar that shapes that you cut and you're rolling ink on the mylar itself. Sometimes I'm rolling ink on the mylar itself. Other times I'm inking up a piece of plexi and then oh. I'm putting the stencils on that and they're blocking out a shape. So I'm, I'm, I use them as both positive and negative. So back to, like I said, everything kind of comes back to 2D comp. So yeah. um, I try to use positive and negative to make the work. Um, so each one actually is quite quick. It's not like my process is very in complex or difficult, but um, it's hard to say exactly how much. I mean, I could finish one in a day in a couple of hours, but that's with but that's with months and months and months of like collecting objects and cutting stencils and mixing colors and then having all this stuff ready to go and then just you know the printing might happen pretty quickly like in a day but that's cuz i've i've done all this prep work that's happened over months mm -hmm. yes well, go ahead how often do you do like the larger pieces um i'm I'm always working on both at the same time. I would say about in about a year, I make one or two of these larger banner pieces and then um, a series of the, you know, uh, smaller works on paper. And they're not that small, but they're smaller. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm always working on both at the same time, but definitely... Um, I wouldn't know where to put the banner works if I'm if I made them at the same pace that I made the other one. So yeah, those are usually just like one or two a year. Good. Do you use all unique stencils for each of the pieces, or do you end up reusing some of the stencils? I definitely reuse things. Yeah. Once you make that a drawer. Yeah, I call it my library. It's like my alphabet. And, you know, it's like, I don't know, I'm not a writer, but I think of it that way, like, that's my alphabet. And then I'm constructing these things out of, like, my library or out of my alphabet. So, um, you can make an, an enormous amount of new things just out of variations of things. So, I think about that a lot, yeah. Good. Anybody else? Any other questions? No? Okay. Taryn, thank you so much. That was a real pleasure. So, uh, so give Taryn a round of applause. Thank you. The work looks great. I'm really glad to see it here, and um, I'm looking forward to coming back out and bringing it to you and getting back to Cleveland again. So, <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye bye. This has been Q and A from the Cadich and Morrissey Galleries at St. Ambrose University. We hope you've enjoyed this program. All rights reserved, 2023.